Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, as always. Today, we're going to be talking about the Oresteia, and this is part one of a two-part miniseries within this show. And in this episode, we're going to talk broadly about the trilogy of plays, and then we're going to go into the first play, Agamemnon. We're going to start at the beginning, Dr. Fleming. What can you tell us about Aeschylus and, and relate him to his, his contemporaries in playwriting? Well, Aeschylus was, of course, the great innovator in, uh, in the writing of Greek tragedy. He had predecessors, but it was he who really sort of put the as an art form uh, on the map. He was of the highest social class. He was from uh, the, a, a family, they're, they're described as uh, Eupatrid, that is people of excellent ancestry. And uh, his family lived in uh, Eleusis, which is the where the Eleusinian mysteries uh, were performed, although there's no evidence uh, that Aeschylus himself was an initiate. As a member of uh, an ancient aristocratic clan, he was also very uh, patriotic. He, we know that uh, on his tombstone, he did not record anything about his literary career, but only in fighting uh, the Persians and uh, in the Persian War. So he was an active soldier uh, during that period. His brother at the Battle of Marathon was killed. He had his hand cut off as he tried to prevent a Persian ship from escaping. So uh, he's a man who uh, served his country in, in action, in battle, and was an, was an active Athenian citizen, and uh, also spent some time traveling. We know he spent some time in, uh, in Sicily with the, uh, with the, uh, the, the ruler of uh, Syracuse, and that uh, Prometheus was almost certainly put on uh, in Sicily. There's some there's some dispute over whether or not Aeschylus wrote the Prometheus Bound. I am absolutely sure that all of the books and articles written to uh, to disprove his authorship are without foundation. Uh, but that's a, another story. So we're dealing with somebody uh, again of the of the uh, of the highest level of Athenian aristocracy, a soldier. And, uh, and a writer of, of great genius. We don't know a lot about his biography. We don't know a lot about the biography of most Greek uh, playwrights. And much of what we do think we know or used to think we know, you know, anecdotes like the um, are usually uh, concocted on the basis of things in their works. Mary Lefkowitz at Wellesley uh, wrote articles and uh, really proving the bogus quality of Greek poetic biography. The, the story of his death is amusing that he was walking along the shore one day and he was bald and an eagle had picked up a tortoise uh, and, and was looking for a rock to drop it on to break the flat, to break the, the shell open, dropped it on Aeschylus' head and he died from the effect of, of the falling turtle. Um, you know, the story is just as silly enough to be possibly true. Hmm. You had uh, mentioned, I, I know when we did our uh, 
our podcast on Sophocles. It's a shameless plug for, for listeners to go back and, and listen to that. Uh, you were talking about the, the different levels of singing, but I, you've also mentioned um, that Aeschylus is uh, a master of stagecraft. Yes. He, um, the, originally, uh, when Greek tragedy was, was developing, obviously we don't have anything uh, from the earlier, anything earlier than Aeschylus, but we know a little bit about it. And uh, we know that it, it was essentially a choral lyric poem. You know, 12 men uh, dressed in robes would be chanting and singing, you know, a, uh, a, a, the, some m misfortune to a hero, you know, the, like the death of Agamemnon, say. And then uh, they added, this is a, a traditional sort of Greek literary form, which exists both for solo uh, uh, voice, but also for, uh, for choral voices. The at some point the Athenian edition was to add an interpreter, a Hippocrates, uh, who would uh, make a, obviously make some kind of speech or chant explaining what was going on, and this became the first actor who would do something like a prologue and a conclusion, and maybe even play the hero and interact with with the chorus. And these these productions became more and more uh, dramatic. That is the the the, the hypocrite, <laughs> to use the English derivative, because our Lord refers to the uh, the scribes, Pharisees, and actors, hypocriti. The the, the hypocrite would uh, eventually become more and more of a just a simply playing a part, and he could come off stage, come back back and forth with different costume props to show that he was a different character. The uh, Aeschylus seems to have been the one to introduce a second actor. Now, this makes not only po dialogue possible between uh, between two people, but they can assume multiple parts. So one person will have the, some of the big roles, but the other the other guy may, he can be a messenger, he can become on, on guard duty, he can become wife, he can he, and he can come off and up on the stage. So we know that uh, Aeschylus introduced the second actor, which makes di which makes dialogue and con personal conflict and characterization possible. The story is that Sophocles introduced the third actor, and as soon as Aeschylus saw this, he uh, immediately seized on this innovation. Certainly, in the um, in this play, in this in this trilogy, in the Aristia, in the second play, the Coephery or Libation Bearers. There is the first instance we have uh, left to us where a third actor actually is indispensable to a scene. So we, we, we know that he, uh, he practiced this kind of innovation. What we also know is that he loved staging. He loved spectacles. So in the Aristia, we know that, for example, there's, uh, there seems to be a lot of effect with uh, uh, light processions, there's also we know that in the second play he has he brings the Furies on stage dressed in black robes and that they were and terrifying masks that people were <clears throat> that people have, were strongly affected by this. There's a story which may or may not be true that uh, pregnant women uh, delivered their babies prematurely. Now, since we, there's strong evidence that women weren't allowed at these festivals, maybe the story is false. On the other hand, it could have been a, like a reproduction at some rural festival where women were allowed. 
but we, we, all I know is we, we, we do have this story. And he was also, of course, being a, being a pl- tragic playwright means he was a composer. Uh, roughly 40% of the lines in the Oresteia are sung. That is, they're, they're choral lyric or, or uh, in, the case, in a few cases, monodic, that is, a, a solo. So this is more like a, like a French light opera in the that is the the big the, the truly important scenes are often uh, what's being narrated by the chorus. So we know that his his stagecraft, his sta- his staging, his costuming, his music, uh, that everything uh, was uh, that he was he was a consummate master on all these. One of my first academic articles was actually on uh, the. Uh, the Aristia and Aeschylus use of an archaic musical form known as the Kitharotic Namos, which he uh, seems to be imitating in the Agamemnon in particular. And it's not just my guess that this is so, because Aristophanes uh, in The Frogs even makes a joke about it, because uh, uh, he, he, he has this is where he says toflarothrat, toflarothrat, and 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 so what? What in the heck is that? Well, that's I'm playing. It's the it's the it's the it's the kithero. It's the kithero, which is a large uh, kind of lyre. So he was uh, he was a uh, even though a complete amateur, he would have never made a dime on his plays, and would have would have would have thought it uh, contemptible to do so. He is uh, maybe the first great professional of the theater. As another part of getting ready to enter into these plays, Dr. Fleming, eating disorders are something we think are quite modern, but uh, you noted that it's something important for us to know in regards to these plays. Yeah, you know, the uh, a, a key part of the Aristia is the theme of uh, an inherited curse, and uh, of uh, the uh, which is. It can come about in various ways, and it has to be repeated and refreshed and renewed. How much of the curse, how far back Aeschylus himself expects us to trace this, we don't know. If you just look at uh, an encyclopedia of mythology, the story begins with Tantalus, who had a banquet for the gods, and he wanted to see how smart they really were. And so Tantalus... Uh, had a banquet in which he chopped up his own son, Pelops, and fed him to the gods. Now, their gods were all too smart to eat, except for Demeter, who was so distracted by mourning for the loss of her daughter Persephone, who, who she didn't know where she was, and she'd been stolen by, uh, by Hades and dragged down to the underworld. Uh, and so she ate part of the shoulder. Uh, when the gods punished Tantalus and put him in hell, they gave Pelops a uh, an ivory shoulder, and uh, he of course came and he came to uh, to Greece, where he defeated the ruler of Elis in a chariot race, and eventually founds the family uh, that that uh, rules Mycenae and Argos. But you see, either his children or grandchildren. Uh, quarreled, Atreus and Thyestes. Thyestes is said to have seduced the wife of Atreus. And uh, so Atreus uh, murdered the children of Thyestes and again served them at a banquet to their own father. And when the father was informed of what he had eaten, he kicked the table over and cursed the uh, cursed uh, his brother, uh, who is the father of 
Agamemnon and Menelaus. So we see these, and that part we know is true, that it was truly being used by Aeschylus because we have a reference to the slaughtered uh, children at the end of the Agamemnon when uh, Cassandra sees them in a kind of uh, prophetic vision. So we have this, this strange, we have this pattern, this repeated pattern of family violence, and it often involves a struggle for power within the family, in, in, in the myth, that, that's part of the struggle between Atreus and Thyestes, and it will be part of the struggle between, uh, between Agamemnon and his cousin, uh, and his, uh, his own cousin Aegisthus. So we have, we, it, and it, it involves sex, violence, and, uh, and, and, and strange banquets. And it's interesting, Dr. Fleming, because I'm also contextualizing the, the episode that we did on, on Oedipus. And because this is Christianity and classical culture, uh, my mind's going to scripture in which they talk about the sins of fathers go, uh, go on to the third and fourth generation. And this isn't just uh, in one book. It's, it's in Numbers. It's in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's in Exodus. So we see it. We see this reference to three or four generations, which which somewhat lines up with both Oedipus, Rex, and with this current cycle of plays, that it, it will be resolved one way or the other. Obviously, in, in the Christian understanding, the resolution is, is, is a, it may come differently, but it seems that there is a match between how, how long this can carry on. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's usually uh, th- three generations comes to an end in the fourth the, 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 the notion of inherited guilt is a way of grappling with a, a very serious problem. And the, the, it's the problem which comes up in the Odyssey. How is it that good men in this world suffer and bad men often prosper? This, this seems unfair. It seems if, 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 if God or the gods really care about justice – then how how is this how is this how can this happen? The Book of Job is a profound meditation on this question. The the uh, ancient we of course uh, uh, the, the Jews never really actually I think figured figured out very well. And uh, Christianity of course offers a vision of an afterlife of heaven hell and uh, and something in between a pur- purgatorial condition. The Greeks did not have that revelation. They did not have, have that. Enlightenment. The easiest uh, solution is to say, well, this world really is a just world if you just wait long enough. Justice may come a little late, but eventually everybody gets his comeuppance. Well, most people get their comeuppance, but not everybody. Not everybody. By far from it. Uh, many very bad people die in bed. So then what? Well, what if they, they, these are a very family centered people? So what if your children? Can inherit the burden. They they don't have to do anything wrong, but they pay for what their father or grandfather did. And one of the ways they may pay for it is also by repeating that kind of sin which father or grandfather did. Now, this kind of behavior does run in families. I mean, there are typical traits within families, and so it's 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 something which they would have observed is true. And so you you get. These, these similar sins running through the, the history from Tantalus to Orestes. You get, you get these uh, self-willed people who uh, do as they choose. So the, the other, by the way, the other, the other attempt to answer this question is a belief in reincarnation. 
To us, reincarnation seems very stupid, and you wonder how could Hindus or Pythagorean Greeks, how could they fall for it? But really, again, it's an attempt to grapple with this problem, to figure out that the universe is just, the gods are just, but there are things that lie beyond our senses or even our lifetime, and so we will take for granted that it's a just universe, but things might not get, scores don't get settled in one generation. Scores get settled either by being reincarnated in various forms or by uh, through your children. One of the reasons why uh, Greeks and Romans, Jews, and uh, believed uh, that uh, in this intergenerational guilt is that their families were so strong. Um, for us, we wanted to find what's happy. Well, Donald Trump is a happy man because he made a lot of money and he has all the women he wants, so therefore he's happy. The, there's a famous um, uh, scene in Herodotus' history where Croesus, the richest man in the world, is showing off his wealth to the Athenian uh, Solon, the great statesman. And he says, who do you think is the happiest man in the world? And so Solon actually names somebody who died in bed after having served his family and uh, served his country in battle and, and ha ha how uh, he had good, good children. And then, then the story of Cleobus and Biton, who pulled their mother's ox cart so she and died, so she could be uh, uh, serve in the in the cult of uh, Argive Hera. And finally, uh, uh, Croesus gets angry and says, "What about me? Look around you. I'm wealthy and powerful. Who is happier than I am?" And so on, in a much quoted statement, says, count no man happy until you know the manner of his death. But unfortunately, this is misunderstood. It's not just the way you die. It's, it's, it's how you die in relationship to your family. You see, if your kids are rotten, then you, are, then you die unhappy, no matter how powerful and rich you are. And of course, that's what happens to poor Croesus. His, his, his good son is, is killed by accident. So, um, so for the Greeks, be, a father being punished by the misfortune of his children and grandchildren makes a lot of sense, just as it makes sense to a sociobiologist. When we're thinking about this play, again, we are reading. We are not getting to experience it as the Athenians did. We're not getting to hear that multi-level of, of choral singing that you've alluded to. So at least we should be able to understand the historical and political context for this. So I've got a two-part question for you, Dr. Fleming. The first is, what is the political situation that Athens is in when this play comes out? How, so the situation in which it's received. And then historically, can you speak more broadly about the Trojan War uh, historically uh, in relation to this play? Yeah. The... the uh Context is pretty clear. The play, the play is produced in 458 at the Greater Dionysia, a, uh, a, religious, uh, a religious festival at Athens. The uh, 458, the, the inevitable context is the Persian War and, and, the, and, the, and the tensions that break out after the Greek victory. The Persians at first invaded, they've invaded, uh, uh, they've taken the town of Eritrea and then in, attacked Athens in 490. And 480, they were, they were driven out, successfully driven out by a, uh, a coalition of Athenian aristocrats, especially led by uh, Mil Miltiades, the, the great uh, 
the great uh, Greek hero of the of the battle. Uh, ten years later, in 480, they're back and uh, back in force. A massive uh, sea and land uh, uh, force is, is launched. Herodotus uh, has a long uh, description of all this. And uh, in a series of engagements, of course, uh, at, Therm- at uh, Thermopylae, uh, the uh, Spartans hold off the Persians until they're all slaughtered. But at uh, two naval battles, in particular at the Battle of uh, Salamis, the Persian fleet is uh, is uh, soundly defeated. And at the Battle of Plataea, the uh, the Persian army is defeated largely by the Spartans uh, who are in charge. So the the uh, and then the the. Greek coalition led by Athens and Sparta, the Greek coalition starts island hopping, pushing the Persians across the uh, to, to to drive them out of the Greek world, all the way to the coast of Asia Minor. It is it's an extraordinary uh, uh, action because these Greek city states are not very friendly to each other. They've never cooperated on this scale before. The Persian Empire is the most powerful political and military force the world has ever known up to this time, and yet they are defeated time after time, to a large extent under the generalship of Kimon, the son of the great victor of the battle uh, <coughs> marathon. So, uh, however, simultaneously now, tensions begin to develop between Athens and Sparta, and, and uh, we, we see that the Spartans are becoming suspicious that the Athenians are aiming at becoming a world power by themselves. The Spartans begin to lose their enthusiasm for any uh, joint actions which will make Athens more powerful. The Athenians, meanwhile, become extremely arrogant and uh, and and uh, are seem hell bent on on uh, diminishing the power and, and the uh, reputation of the Spartans. Two factions develop at Athens, political factions, and this becomes very important. The faction led by Cimon is the faction faction that wants to continue the patriotic war, liberating the Greek cities from the Persian yoke, and working with Sparta. Cimon and his friends, they, they were large landowning uh, aristocrats. They respected Sparta. The Spartans were not viewed as, as somehow, as they've been <clears throat> in by historians in the past 50, 60 years. They were very much admired for producing the finest men in the Greek world. And they hoped, these people hoped, Athens and Sparta in combination could drive them out. Cimon, of course, was also believed in maintaining aristocratic control over the senior offices at Athens. He was not a Democrat. He pandered to the mob only by giving free food and banquets. He threw his house open that you could come and eat there. It was the old-fashioned lordly style of like a medieval baron. Pericles, however, who is beginning to emerge as the faction leader on the other side, as Thucydides says, he took the common people into his own faction. In other words, he did what so many aristocrats like Julius Caesar or Franklin Roosevelt have done since. He posed as the people's friend in order to get, gain power so that he could dispossess his rivals in the aristocracy. Uh, Pericles came from just as wealthy and distinguished a background as Cimon, but by, by uh, I would say, feigning an affection for the lower classes, 
he made himself virtual dictator and most of his rivals had to go into exile. It's at this period when this this rivalry is breaking out and on the period bef- uh, when when. Athens is looking for allies against Sparta, Argos, for example, on the uh, not not far from Sparta. It's this is the dramatic point at which this play is launched and not to see in it reflections on the politics of Athens at the time, not not cheap political issues, who's going to be the head strategos of the year, but rather the deeper questions. What is the function of an aristocracy? What is the function of law? What is the function of tradition? All of these things will come to the fore as the, as the play moves on. And as we get into the third play, the humanities, it becomes clear how you view ancient traditions like Blood revenge. How, is this is this to be eliminated from progressive democratic Athens uh, as an as a religious anachronism, or is it to be incorporated into the Athenian constitutional framework? And this this becomes the real, the, the big question uh, that that the play addresses. So all of that, all of that, I think we have to be aware of. This is a this is a revolutionary period in the history of Athens and the, the struggle really is over who the Athenians are, what kind of, how they're going to conduct their commonwealth. Your other uh, question had to do with the, uh, with the uh, Trojan War because obviously the story is set in the aftermath of the Trojan War. Agamemnon is the high king of Mycenae. You know, we see that in, uh, although in uh, Aeschylus sets it in Argos, which has become an Athenian ally. He is the high king. The other kings like Diomedes and Nestor uh, have a kind of feudal allegiance to him. And even people who have no allegiance to him uh, have to respect him as being the wealthiest and most powerful of the, of the, uh, in the Greek world. He, uh, uh, to, to avenge the crime committed by Paris, Alexander. Alexander seems to be his real name, but he's nicknamed Paris. Uh, And Paris has not only stolen Agamemnon's brother's wife, but also a lot of his possessions in, uh, in the bargain. And his family and city of Troy refused to give him up. So it is their arrogance makes them uh, criminal. Their Priam, the king of Troy is therefore a sinner just like his son, because he protects his son. And just as a son inherits the guilt of his father, so a father who condones what his son has done also has to share the guilt. Agamemnon launches this big big expedition, but something happens. The winds won't blow, and and there's a sign. uh, Two eagles devour a pregnant hare. This is not part of the mythological tradition. Aeschylus introduces it. The pregnant hare is obviously uh, Troy with all its people in it and its churches, its its temples and uh, everything in Troy, which will be sacked and destroyed mercilessly. And the the prophet, the the oracle monger says, well, the only way we're going to be able to uh, continue with the expedition to fulfill the will of Zeus you have to sacrifice your daughter, Iphigenia. Agamemnon agonizes. He's, he's, he's grief-stricken. And he says, he throws his staff, the symbol of his majesty, to the ground. 
and says, what in this is without evil? Can I, can I kill my daughter? Can I defy the will of Zeus? He is caught, caught in a bind. Now, to us, it seems like he's a victim of a cr- cruel fate or cruel gods. But remember, he is going to commit crimes at Troy. He's going to destroy their temples. He's going, their women will be outraged. All sorts of terrible things are going to happen. And so he proves that he is the man who can do this by killing his own daughter. And in fact, Aeschylus says the winds of his spirit veered. In other words, his, his temperament shifts and he becomes a villain in the act of killing his own daughter. And so as a result, these crimes are committed. Now, when, when he returns, when he returns, his wife gives them a big fake greeting. She's, she's already having an affair with his cousin, Aegisthus, she, and they're plotting to kill him. And she, she's got these purple these garments colored the color of royalty, crimson. The, the Greeks say purple, but you know, purple even in Old French means, uh, means bright red. And she asks him to trample on them. And he says, that's the kind of thing an oriental potentate would do. That le- I leave that sort of a- a- arrogance to Priam. And she says, but you are the Lord now. You have every, you have, you, 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 nothing can stop you. You're indomitable. You can walk on this. So, in other words, he has become like Priam. In other words, he has become a, a sinner who trample, tramples on sacred things, just as Priam and Paris had. Now, what what possible relevance does this have for the political context, which uh, I had been sketching out earlier? Well, it has a lot of relevance in that Athens, as as Timon knew all too well, Athens was inheriting the mantle of empire that had been worn so arrogantly by Persia. And it and it seems to me, although I've never read a literary critic who suggested this, it seems to me pretty clear that one of the warnings in the play is that if we follow the lead of the democratic faction and we, we start acting arrogantly toward our ally, we're going to be – the Athenians are going to become the enemy of the Greeks in the same way that the Persians were. And so, in other words, the the equivalent of Agamemnon becoming Priam is that the that the Athenians will become act like Persia. Do you do you see this cycle of plays as as the best that pre Christian civilization could do in terms of answering difficult moral questions? It's certainly um, a masterpiece. It certainly impressed. Its contemporary audience very powerfully. It. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get to your your main point uh, in just a second. Interestingly, it seems to have sort of dropped off the map after a while. You know, Aeschylus in later years was always acknowledged to be a great writer, but it's like acknowledging Chaucer to be a great writer. It's better to talk about him than to read him. And um, and they um, he doesn't seem to have been read as much. The plays that were read were the Persians, the Seven Against Thebes, and the uh, Prometheus. Um, And they exist in many, many manuscripts. There's basically only one manuscript and a copy of it uh, in which we find uh, the Aristia and the the suppliant women uh, preserved, and it's, it's not always such a hot manuscript. 
So clearly this was not a favorite in the Byzantine period, and there's no reason to believe it was a favorite in the Alexandrian period. Why not? To us, to somebody who reads it seriously today in Greek or in translation, it seems to be a, an extremely powerful book, a work. But, but remember, it's, the Greek is very difficult. You mean, even, uh, even for uh, somebody living in Aristotle's time, the Greek, you'd have to, have to buckle down. You have to have a large vocabulary. And, and uh, the, the text, of course, over the years has uh, been obviously uh, somewhat corrupted because it, uh, it, was not, uh, it was not corrected very often. So we, we, there are difficulties to the play which made it rather inaccessible to schoolboys being taught Greek in the, from, say, 200 B.C. to 1500 A.D. However, uh, it is a... a a large-scale masterpiece dealing with some of the most difficult questions of human life, the question of just questions involving justice, questions involving family loyalties. As in the case of so many Greek tragedies, family relations are at the heart of it. I mean, Agamemnon has to kill his daughter, so his wife feels it, it, she's she is uh, justified in killing him, which makes it imperative that her own son kill her, which is the most horrifying act in the history of Greek mythology, virtually. It's, it's hard to think of anything more horrifying than a, than a boy being told by the god Apollo, you must kill your mother because of, what she, because of her murder of your father. These... these and why, why do they have to take up such gr grisly topics? I've been asked a number of times when I've lectured on this for, say, uh, Christian homeschool groups. They, they really don't even want to hear the outline of a story, you know, from, from, <clears throat> from Tantalus serving up Pelops to the gods to, to Agamemnon killing his daughter to Orestes killing his mother. These are horrifying stories. And the answer is because these stories – put the moral question on the edge. They, 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 they're questions of, of life and death. It's pointed as sharply as it can. And so to, to try to figure out how, a fa how families integrate into society, how justice is, is achieved in this world, uh, what, what, what nobility and honor are, all of these things are, are in the play and they're in, a, in and they're presented, I think, more powerfully than any than any Christian work has done. The only Christian writer who approaches, I think, uh, Aeschylus for majesty is Dante, and Dante takes things up fra in in fragments, whereas Aeschylus presents us this this magisterial three part play, where and it's the only it's the only trilogy that we have left from the ancient world, so we're particularly impressed with it. For all we know, Aeschylus wrote half a dozen trilogies just as good. But this is what we have. So the answer is, yes, this is about as serious as literature can get. And what I find, one of the big problems is you know, that people ask is, can there be a Christian tragedy? In an Aeschylean sense, perhaps not. And but you know we our culture has not produced a literary masterpiece of this quality. What translations would you prefer us to use? Obviously, our listeners may not necessarily be following along in the Greek 
uh, original. <laughs> what would you like us to use? Um, the one that I have is the, the old uh, Penguin Classic from the 70s. Um, that was uh, done by Philip Vellicott. And, yeah. and it's, uh, it's, a, it, it's trying to preserve, I, I think, that sense of poetry within it. It's not quite... A literary translation. Do you have any preferences or thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Velikat was a little bit goofy uh, in some of his uh, uh, lit cred. It, it's a it's a pretty pedestrian translation. It's flat. Um, there are uh, the 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 simple the answer is there there are no even remotely successful translations. Um, the old uh, uh, Loeb edition at Harvard, uh, uh, which has Greek and English on facing pages by Weir Smythe, is at least an honest attempt to grapple in English prose. The translation that I most like, I'm a perhaps biased. By, uh, my my uh, dissertation director, Douglas Young, uh, who was a pretty good poet, in, but mostly wrote in the Scots uh, language rather than in plain English, but uh, Young wrote a translation of the Aristia published by the University of Oklahoma Press, and it's easy to get for a dollar or two in a secondhand hardback. I, um, I, he, he gave it to me in manuscript, and I disagreed with him about some of his metrical eccentricities, like ending, uh, ending a basic iambic line with two short syllables. I said, you automatically give it an extra accent there. So I went through and we argued, uh, and I argued various text questions with him. So <clears throat> I, um, I helped to revise the translation. It's, it's his translation, and he agreed with me on every, on every change. But um, I think uh, he was a real poet and a real scholar, and uh, and I think it comes – it's the only one that even tries to grapple with the seriousness. He was also a textual conservative of an extreme degree, and if he could find a way of justifying the traditional reading, uh, he would. Now, he takes this maybe too far, but on the other hand, I, I, I happen to think that many uh, very fine scholars, including – Douglas Young's only other PhD student, uh, other than me, was uh, E. Christian Kopf, and uh, and Dr. Kopf goes in the in the other direction toward uh, and the editors get to rewrite the text essentially in pursuit of better grammar and better meter. But anyway, I, I would uh, I strongly endorse that translation. And do you know do you know who puts that out? Uh, University of Oklahoma. Okay. And it's available. I I I've, I got a, somebody a spare copy a couple of months ago, and they're they're pretty cheap on uh, secondhand uh, uh, bookshop sites like uh, like Abe. Okay, great. Well, uh, for our listeners, that is the the first part, sort of setting the table, getting us ready to appreciate these plays. And we're going to start into Agamemnon now, Doctor Fleming. You gave us a preachy of what happens prior to this play. Do you want us to give? Do you want to give us an overview of what happens just within this play? All right. Uh, the, the, it's, uh, the play, of course, takes place uh, in uh, less than a single day. Um, it begins with this intense uh, brooding. A uh, Clytemnestra is uh, the, the wife of Agamemnon, has uh, been waiting for a signal that Troy has taken. And she describes the uh, the set of uh, of uh, bonfires that have been set going across the Aegean so that when they set a fire at Troy 
but one by one, people on hilltops on the islands will see it. It's a kind of a fire telegraph system. And, uh, and she describes how this works. And then we hear that, in fact, it, is, it has happened. And, um, but, but, you know, it's a little ominous because, uh, you know, when we, at the beginning we hear this, the, the watchman describes, uh, describes what's going on. He sees the flash. The, of course, the, fl- the fire is ignited by the burning of Troy. Which is which is going to be uh, the fact that the the city's burnt down and the temples are burnt down is part of why Agamemnon is going to be punished. Clytemnestra um, is one of the most remarkable characters in world literature. She is uh, stunningly powerful, resolute. Her husband is putty in her hands. She is uh, has a, the mind of a man. In a woman's body, of course, she is the half sister to Helen of Troy, and uh, so she is a she is a, a an, an enormously powerful. Are you saying uh, she's got all the brains, Doctor Fleming? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Um. So, the the uh, she, all her conversation with the uh, chorus. It is verbal fencing, and when Agamemnon comes on the scene, she traps him in a web of language, deceitful language, language on two levels about what when uh, when when the man is in the house, it's like a cool breeze going through on a summer day. Well, she's talking about her lover Aegisthus, so she uses her her her, her by by language she 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 bewitches Agamemnon's soul and mind and so he does as she wishes and he has this ceremonial walk down this this sort of blood smear of uh, of gar- of of red garments uh, as he goes off to his bath and in the, in the bath of course uh he is uh murdered and we hear he all, all we, we hear a cry off stage, you know, Otototoi, you know, I am slain, and it's a, and it's interesting how we don't need it, the, the Greek tragedy is so powerful it would ruin it to show it on stage, and of course it was forbidden. They looked upon violence the way Christians look upon exp, an explicit sex in a movie. It's something that you you simply cannot portray. You can describe it, you can narrate it up to a point. But that's all you can do. Meanwhile, on stage, uh, uh, of course, with uh, Agamemnon, he's brought back one of Priam's daughters, Cassandra. Cassandra had once upon a time had wanted to become uh, had prophetic gifts. So she said that if Apollo gave her the gift of prophecy, she would sleep with him. And then when the time came to pay the price, she refused. And so Apollo grimly told her she would always tell the truth, but no one would ever believe her. So, th- so she on stage, the choir, t- the, the chorus tried. They ask her various questions about who she is and what's happening. But she, she has a vision, and she sees both the slaughtered children of Thyestes delivered to their father in a banquet and she sees the 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 the, the furies these e- angry evil demons born from the blood of a murder victim and they're sitting like crows on the eaves of the palace waiting to pounce waiting to dr- to drink the blood 
of the members of the family. It's a, it is a terrifying moment. There are no more. There, there are several scenes in the course of the Oresteia that are more terrifying than perhaps anything uh, in world literature. And, and, and this is one of them. She also knows she sees a vision. She says, oh, she says, keep the cow from the bull. Meaning she knows Clytemnestra is going to murder her husband and she knows that she's going to be murdered because Clytemnestra is envious that Agamemnon has taken, obviously, Cassandra to be his concubine. So she she sees it all. And in that one moment, the past is present. Time is eliminated. And by the way, as time is also eliminated in the course of the uh, of the various choral passages uh, of this play, so uh, poor poor Cassandra is led off stage to her doom. She knows she will die just as Agamemnon has died. And at the end of the play, when we we know Agamemnon and Cassandra are dead, the chorus divides into two factions, one loyal to Aegisthus and the new regime, and the other loyal to Agamemnon and his, obviously, his heirs, Orestes and Electra, his son and daughter. And what you see is that this, this kind, the, the, the kind of uh, disorder in the, in the royal family has now led to a kind of civil war that is uh, that is that is tearing the city apart, and I, and I believe, by the way, I believe this is a direct reflection on on uh, Athens in the four fifties, which is now divided strongly into factional into factional fighting, and we we even know there's a there's a famous case where they found a, a they found a a, a goat with a, with a malformation of the skull, and you know it looked like it, it's formed into a single. A single horn, and um, a prophet said it said there was there was uh, division within the community, and it was a, it was a civil war that was about to break out. But uh, Anaxagoras, the philosopher, dissected the skull to show it was just a natural growth formation, and everybody believed Anaxagoras at the time. But later, as the struggle between Pericles and Cimon got more sharp. They began to wonder maybe the old time religion had the real answer after all, and I believe that that is be, that is reflected that that sense that Athens is no longer unified as it had always been virtually uh, that Athens is not a unified place but a divided place now you've also mentioned Fleming that you consider these plays to be liturgical, and again we're coming back to the idea of Christianity and classical culture. What do you mean when you say liturgical? You know, in a in a liturgy, uh, in a Christian liturgy, and to take two examples in uh, the uh, Greek Orthodox liturgy and in the traditional Catholic Mass, um, first of all, it is it is a sacred action that unite everybody. Uh, who is taking part in it, uh, and that means it unites, in the, in, the, in the case of the Catholic Mass, it's believed that not only, you know, it, or as they say in the Anglican, the company of all faithful believers, that all people taking part of the Mass are united in the sacrament, in, the, uh, in receiving uh, the, the, uh, the body and blood of their Savior, Jesus Christ. This is there's no there's no more more, more profound or moving uh, ritual 
in human experience. But part of this is, of course, it also means you're reunited with everyone who's ever done this and ever will do this. So time, time is annihilated. Uh, you know, after, after um, we say the Lord's Prayer, in, in the traditional Mass, it's been taken out of the, of the uh, new Mass, but there is a prayer, uh, it's, yeah, it's, oh, then set us free, O Lord, you know, from, uh, uh, from all, all the things that we would suffer in the past, present, and future. Well, excuse me, how can we be liberated from future pain? And the answer is because this is liturgical, because because everything that has ever happened and ever will happen for in, in, in Christian experience is present in the Mass. So in, in, in the Agamemnon, obviously we're now speaking on a pagan on the lower level, but in the Agamemnon, when the chorus tells the story of the sacrifice of Iphigenia, we are there present in the suffering. These things, these things pop into our mind. In, in, in all the choral passages, time is obliterated, and we are present at the at the sacrifice of uh, at the at the murder of Thyestes' children. We are present at the destruction of Troy. We are and 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 we're we are. And just as when Cassandra sees the the, the dead children, the pa- the past is alive in the present through the play, and so it's very much a uh, a sacramental liturgical uh, exercise. And of course, it's important always to remember that these plays are being performed at not simply for entertainment; they're being performed at a religious festival. And, and, and the Athenians of the 5th century, when their drama was in full swing, they were a deeply religious people. And, of course, many, many hundreds of years later, when St. Paul comes, he, he sees and he says, I see you, Athen- you people of Athens are the most superstitious people in the world. That is, you're the most uh, religious. You even have, a, you have, a, you have an altar in your in your in your forum in your agora, you have an altar to the unknown god, just in case you missed one. So the Athenians, in fact, were always deep, despite the fact that they 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 are the home of rational philosophy. They were always a very the, the common people are deeply religious. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that gospel, Doctor Fleming. That was the gospel for this last Sunday, the twenty first Sunday after Pentecost. It was the uh, patronal feast of Saint Denis. Uh, here, Saint Denis in Paris, so um, it was only observed as the last gospel. But uh, um, it's a, that's a powerful, powerful message, and the fact that he sits there and he reasons with them, and uh, it's a, I could uh, the 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 passage closes with some people argued with him, but it said others took it up with enthusiasm. In fact, there was a um, the Greek uh, the Greek name is Dionysus, so yes. Dionysus the Areopagite. So there was a, a Saint Denis mention in Scripture as well, which I think is why it was chosen for, yeah. for that mass. So, well, it used to be believed they're the same person. No, nobody believes that now, but they were they were actually identified. Yes. Mm. Well, there's so much that you've just commented on, Doctor Fleming. I, uh, I. I'm trying to think about what I'd like to ask first. Uh, when you mentioned the Watchmen's uh, setting us up for the play, I thought there's there's not really any way to look at any of the the Watchmen commentaries in any Shakespearean play without thinking Shakespeare is is thinking of this sort of setup where he uses this minor character to give us this canvas for this uh, this great drama that is going to unfold for us. 
Yeah, it, it's true. And one of the things that Shakespeare and Aeschylus have in common, which the other two Greek playwrights, do, dra, dra, uh, tra, tragic playwrights do not, Shakespeare, uh, 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 Aeschylus has an eye for quirky minor characters. So in this, the, the watchman, who is a crude sort of lower – well, Sophocles a little bit, but he's a crude lower class person, and he knows that there are certain things he shouldn't say because – He's living like under Stalin. You know, this is, you know, Clytemnestra and her lover have got everybody sworn to silence. Don't, don't, you can't mention anything and you can't talk about it. And in fact, he says, an ox has trod upon my tongue because he dare not allude in any way to the difficulties of the house or, and he's full of foreboding. And as he says at the at the very beginning, he says, "I lie awake." At, you know, he you know he tries to he wants to get rid of the the burden of his anxiety, and he says he lies like dog like, in other words, on his on his elbows, staring at the sky night after night after night. He's he's a he's a model not not just of expectation, but of anxiety and and brooding and worry, and yet. He's he's also he was probably getting a laugh or two. Hmm. Similarly, uh, another character in the um, in the second play, when uh, they they decided they're going to kill uh, Clytemnestra, and there's a maid there, a Cilician woman, and so the chorus intervening, I would think most inappropriately, they say, "Hey, Cilician, come over here." He said, "Don't." Don't tell anybody what you've seen or it'll go worse for you. Get it? <laughs> and, and, you know, and the fact is she says nothing. And so her mistress is murdered. But I mean, but she's a but these are, she's a, she's an amusing minor character. And there are this and Aeschylus is very good at this. These funny uh, bits of characterization. He doesn't describe anybody. You have to re- almost read between the lines to see how would a real actor play this. But there's a, there's a lot of meat there for these minor characters. You also mentioned the Greeks aren't going to show you some great act of violence. It's much better to allude to it. But the genius, too, within this is that we have a prop from that murder which has a payoff in the third play. Uh, where we can we can hearken back and say this is how my father was trapped. Yes, and yes. It, 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 it's interesting because if you're reading the play and you're not given any foreknowledge of this, you just think, oh, I wonder how he was murdered. But you know, Aeschylus is saving this gem for us later on, and and he's not forgetting about us, and he's assuming he has this canvas to work with, which is which is fascinating. Yes, the uh, the the net, and of course, when when Orestes hold, holds it up, and you know, it's, well, how will I describe? How will I describe this? You know, it's been it's been pecked full of holes, and it's an image of the corpse of Agamemnon that's been that's been uh, uh, what what I think I think uh, who is it the the great uh, the great French poet who describes some some uh, corpse that's been hanged? Is it more pecked than a than a than a seamstress thimble? And uh, that is by crows. And it's, Aeschylus has this similarly powerful image of uh, the, the net with, full of holes, just as Agamemnon is full of holes. One, um, one um, I, I'm, not, I'm not much fond of image studies. And there's a particularly zany book by Anne Lebeck that came out in the, uh, I guess, around 1970 on the study of imagery in the Aristia. And it's mostly, you know, pretty silly stuff. 
But a, a friend of Lebec's, who was a friend of mine, pointed out that he thinks that in Aeschylus, that image study is rational if if it can be shown to be relate to stage business, things you would actually see on stage. Like, so if there's a, the bathtub, the net, various other things, when these, when these are used uh, in, metaphorically and in, and in various images uh, or, or light in the case of the whole Aristia, because, you know, at the beginning, we, we, we hear about this, 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 uh, this bonfire telegraph coming from Troy, and of course, and at the end we have we have a procession, a, a torchlight procession to welcome the humanities into the Athenian Commonwealth. So, the Aeschylus certainly, at that level, I, I agree that the, that that kind of an uh, image analysis is useful because Aeschylus thought it important enough to actually be putting this stuff on stage. I want to. I have to close out this episode, Dr. Fleming, because I know you like to keep our our shows, our individual episodes uh, shorter so as not to overwhelm our, our listeners. So uh, we'll, we'll obviously be talking about this play within the context of the other two plays in the next part of this mini-series, and there's lots of questions that overlap. The one that I want to speak about uh, to close our episode today is the tension between male and, and female, and this strange idea of Clytemnestra t- sort of unmanning Agamemnon within within the context of uh, of his murder and and her role as as ruler is questioned so uh, when she says uh, yes we have news from Troy this, uh, what is this a woman's optimism I need to confirm this uh, her word is doubted and yet it turns out she is the one who is speaking truth and it's it's the men who have been somewhat delusional is is Aeschylus being subversive here about uh, I even I don't even want to use the phrase because it sounds so modern within this context, but gender roles. What yeah. is what is uh, is Aeschylus making a commentary upon his his culture, or, or am I am I being a bit too modern in, in how I'm thinking about this? Well, you're you're right to note the what's happening now. By the way, most feminists assume that Aeschylus is a uh, is a is an right, raving misogynist, right? Yeah. Et cetera, right? And uh, he's certainly not a misogynist. I mean, his his female characters are, are quite quite interesting. Very. I mean, Clytemnestra uh, is a, is an amazing character. Electra in the second play is a very powerful character. So he he, he and uh, the suppliant women are are wonderful characters. I mean, and, and, uh, and we see this yeah. with other playwrights as well. So yeah. So so he's not a he's not a misogynist. The great that that the, the whole notion is it's it's like calling Donald Trump a misogynist, but. Uh, <laughs> The um, but there is, you know, it, it as the the play that this in many respects resembles the Aristia resembles has themes in Hamlet. They're both they're both with they're both revenge plays. They're both plays about p- proper rulers being uh, being overthrown and illegitimate rulers taking over, and uh, it's a theme and also in uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. In fact, Shakespeare seems to be uh, obsessed with this idea, and probably because he lived in the illegitimate and tyrannical days of uh, Elizabeth. But um, for Aeschylus, the fact that it is not Aegisthus who is the ruler, but Clytemnestra means that there's something rotten in the state of Argos, to parody uh, 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 Shakespeare, that the world is turned upside down. He says, there's a wolf roaming in the lion's bed. 
That's the, the wolf being Aegisthus. Agamemnon has his faults. He has committed evil and must pay, but he is a great man. We don't see that in this play, especially, except maybe his entry scene where, you know, he, it would have been, uh, he would have been pretty magnificent coming in. But by the second play, he is treated with enormous reverence by his children and by everybody who speaks of him. And so he has become uh, you know, the, the dead embodiment of the good ruler, like, like Hamlet's father, uh, the, the senior Hamlet. So one of the signs that there's something deeply wrong in, in, uh, in this society, in, in Argos, is that a woman is ruling. Nobody likes this. Nobody's willing to accept it. But it, it is the ugly reality. And it was inconceivable to an Athenian. An Ionian Greek, maybe they could accept a queen. You know, uh, Herodotus lived in Halicarnassus, and in his day, the ruler was a was a, a Carian queen who probably spoke uh, Greek as well. But I mean, Queen Artemisia, she's got a, even a Greek name, and uh, and she's portrayed very positively. In general, though, the, the Greeks were did not conceive of this as being possible much less appropriate. So the, the role inversions that, uh, of this, it, it, they also, they anticipate a, the, what, what's going to happen in the third play where, where gender, if we may use the term, gender roles are important because the Furies are female, and they, of course, they are supporting the, the, the punishment of Orestes for killing his mother, whereas Athena says, well, I am a woman, I'm a goddess, but I have no mother, so I, I take the male side. So part of what's going on is, in fact, part of the conflict in Argos, within the play, is definitely conceived of as a, as a, as a, a conflict between the sexes. It goes down to a very, very primitive level, and the fact that there's a woman in charge means that there's something seriously wrong. Well, we'll leave it there, Dr. Fleming. Uh, We're going to conclude the second part of this two-part miniseries in the next episode, in which we'll talk about the other two plays in this trilogy. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode or themes that you'd like to see covered in the second part of this miniseries, please email Thomas at Fleming.Foundation. We want to remind you that Christianity and classical culture is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to James at Fleming.Foundation. As always, thanks to our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for, and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time, and until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.